The Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 14. Yet another body, yet another convulsion of rage against the ineffectual police. A woman is thrown off a high-rise, 13 unlucky stories to her death. The pedestrian who discovered her was rushing home to his wife and was not used to being out this late. He feared that she would suspect him of infidelity, the things that people will admit to newspaper reporters, when the real cause was that he had met an old high school friend and they had drunk at the bars until they closed down and then went to a party of a friend of a friend where... Anyway, he had just checked his watch, 3.39 a.m., when he heard a sound behind him, sort of a clapping sound, as he described it to the radio reporter, but also kind of like a thud, too. He stopped, stared at the woman now splayed face down on the sidewalk, and didn't immediately make the connection that she had gotten there from above. When he did, he backed away, sat on a bench on the street, and called 911. The town is scared and sympathetic at first. Flowers, stuffed animals, candles, handwritten messages, poems, Bibles, du, all appear at the site of the fall after the police have cleared the scene. I watch it on the news first. One of the reporters from the channel that likes to highlight the human element of all stories crouches in front of the mass of gifts and wishes and then actually picks up one of the teddy bears and brandishes it in front of the camera, looks down at it as if to glean some explanation for the senseless crime and then into the camera again and signs off. I am nearly apoplectic with disbelief seeing such exploitation, seeing such a desecration. The next day I visit the site myself. The pile of things, mostly pinks and blues, is even bigger, and I just stand off to the side for about 15 minutes, watching more and more people bring even more things, people standing silently, not unlike myself, people crying. A woman in her 20s, wearing horn-rimmed glasses and a short black dress, walks up to within inches of the edge of the pile and then removes a small light blue box from her purse. She looks at it for a moment and then presses it to her lips, and as a tear rolls down her cheek, she bends down slowly and places the box in amidst the rest of the things. Standing again, she wipes her tears, then pinches the top of her nose, the thumb and index finger of her left hand on either side and nearly protruding into her eyes. Her head is bowed and she maintains that pose almost completely stationary for a solid minute while cars buzz by her and other people walk up to the shrine as well, most of them pausing to look at her after they have dropped off their own bit of sympathy. Three days later, there is a demonstration in front of City Hall on Saturday, waves of people with placards who make their way to the police headquarters. I have trouble knowing whom to support. Perhaps such a balance of mind, such equanimity on my part as the result of having spent so much time in academic research for which an ability to sift through evidence is much more valuable than making facile accusations. I estimate that there must be a couple of thousand people cramming the streets. A chance starts. Arrests now. Arrests now. Arrests now. But eventually subsides. 
A man dressed in wrinkly linen heads to a makeshift podium set up at the bottom of the steps leading to City Hall, squints and starts back a bit at the squelch of microphone feedback, and finally addresses the now silent crowd. People, thank you for coming out this afternoon. There are a few shouts and some applause and then silence again. Thank you for being part of this citizens' protest against a lack of action on the part of the police and the politicians to get something done about this, about this atrocious set of crimes in our beautiful city. Let me tell you some of the things that our Community Action Committee has done to... While the speech drags on a little too long, if I may say so, I do marvel at the power of democracy, as naive and simple-minded as that might sound. Crimes are committed and the law enforcement institution which has been charged with discovering the criminals has not been effective. Whether or not it has tried to do its job, and I suppose that to be generous one must assume so, it has not been successful. Victims continue to pile up and a murderer is on the loose. The people rise up, demand action, threaten or imply that they will take the law into their own hands if there are no results. No results, we'll do our own damn investigating and find this killer ourselves, he says. This last bit is fairly shouted into the microphone, and there is distortion on the last syllable, but the message is clear. The, cl- the crowd roars, hands in the air, a chant started, I cannot make out the words, and then abandoned, and at first there is confusion. Finally, a rough choreography is initiated and a woman with a megaphone at one corner of the crowd, farthest away from the man at the mic, speaks. People, people, we are going to march down King Street and then circle back here for our last rally. There are colleagues in red and white jackets to the left and right of me and in front of me. They are going to lead the walk and we're going to start right now. Please follow them. We don't want this to be violent or anything like that. We don't want to riot. We just want to show the police that there is a big problem here. With that, there is a cheer and the march sets itself in motion in an admirably orderly fashion. I am torn about whether to proceed with the crowd, perhaps cozy up to an activist and match him stride for stride with question after question, or to sit here on the steps of City Hall, reflect on what I have seen, and await the return of the protesters. I do stand there for about five minutes as they all clear out and round the turn onto William Street, but I ultimately feel the monster fatigue in me, and I decide to head off. The dead woman, the latest cause of all this uproar, is Pamela Yang, and all I can think of as I walk away and head home is that this feels like such a vibrant name. I reach my room and just plop down onto the little red sofa, slouching, back arched unhealthily. I resent the sounds I hear outside. It is not noisy, but even the occasional car horn, someone talking to someone else, so the brakes never need to be fixed again, someone else laughing, everything makes me want nothing but the perfection of silence. I am a little disgusted at my own practicality as well, because at the same time that I am to some extent at least grieving a senseless death, number whatever it is, I am also making mental notes about details, things that would not exploit the boy victim, but that would entice vile, wrong word, readers. Pamela faced down, that sound the pedestrian heard. 
I cannot relax at all, and I get up again and head out to the pub, where unfortunately I meet the raver. My mind is swimming with details, and unfortunately, I haven't noticed him come into the room. He's in mid-sentence by the time he sits down next to me. What they're doing anyway, so I say, let's go house to fucking house and give a lie detector or look for evidence or whatever until we find this prick. I consider my options in this situation, and none of them is very appealing. For the briefest of fantasy moments, I doff an imaginary Sherlock Holmes hat and start puffing on one of those silly pipes and silently pronounce the raver himself as the murderer. The guise, the ruse, is brilliant. What better way to distract attention from yourself than to seem to be attracting attention? I'm reminded of the parade of bullies I barely endured in high school, dumb brutes who appeared to revel in self-confidence, but whose facades came tumbling down in various circumstances, typically when they were genuinely challenged, or when you met them alone and could reason with them without the posturing. There are exactly seven people in the room other than myself and the bartender. They are all as tarred with guilt as the raver is. That's not a pool cue, but I, I see, but a rifle. The safety on for now, but his thumb sliding slyly and dangerously close when he makes the nine in the side. That knife of a swizzle stick is not much good for stirring, but I can see from the look in his cloudy eyes that he's aching to wield it, do his best with the gin and tonic, and then go slashing. Or maybe it's the whole room. A murder for each pair of people so far for all, but not for, for one of them. And who would that be? Who has that shifty look, those shuffling feet, that anxious tension that betrays itself in nervous laughter and brooding silences? Not the guy in the red and black lumberjack shirt. Not the guy pretending to watch television. Not the... Yes, it's him. It's the accountant with the chief scuffed-up briefcase, the shabby, shiny, dark blue suit whose pants are lighter than the jacket because they've been washed more than it, is, than it has been dry-cleaned. And then there's that telltale ring around the collar of a shirt that used to be pristine white but now is off, as they say, off-white. I see him counting up victims on stubby little fingers, the tally running through the total permitted by two hands and forcing him to start over, 11, 12, 13, and then that sly evil hint of a smile of anticipation when he realizes that it's his turn now with the 14th. The cue ball pops out onto the floor at my feet and I am snapped back into what passes for reality now. Oops, the raver says. I pick up the ball and peruse it for a minute and then just toss it to him lightly. He fumbles the reception and the ball clacks to the floor again and rolls right back to me. I pick it up and he looks at me in a certain way, so I just hold it out to him this time and he walks over slowly to retrieve it. Safer this way, he says to the ball, avoiding my eyes altogether. I sit back in my chair and my hand gravitates toward a glass of something that I don't even remember ordering. I sip. It's sour and the color of dirty water. It invigorates me somewhat, though, like a shot of adrenaline, and I set it down and turn back to watch the game. Like a baby, I wish that life could reduce itself to quarters or periods or halves or to whatever other convenient slice with an unequivocal result. 
I'm tired of this mystery tonight, tired of the growing list of dead people and with the time not conveniently running out, tired of this not being a game from which someone rescues me from the floor after the last second has clicked off and it's all zeros and somebody, somebody has won. I just want it to be over. That's all.